0: Hello listeners, Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime Early and Ad-Free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. One subplot that finds its way into most stories about UFOs is that there is some sort of powerful but secretive branch of the government that is well aware of the anomalous activities that play out in our skies. And somewhere behind a thick veil of secrecy, a room full of men and women are dressed in black, waiting to be dispatched to a small town to address, investigate, and then cover up a crash saucer or crop circle. Well, if that team of real-world Fox Mulders does exist, they've yet to make themselves known. But the reports that they may or may not be tasked with, well, that's another story altogether. In fact, a large cache of UFO reports recently found their way to the public eye, thanks in part to the investigative reporting of a Canadian journalist named Daniel Otis. As it recently played out, Daniel happened upon a database in which those involved in aviation report occurrences that could affect the safety and operation of our country's aircraft, airports, and airspace. And speckled across the many mundane reports of flat tires, rocky landings, and faulty valves are reports of unexplained objects being witnessed and reported by our country's aviators. Now this may not be the smoking gun or act of government disclosure we've been waiting for. But it is certainly a collection of credible reports that should be taken very seriously. And tonight, we're going to hear all about it. In this episode of Nighttime, we're going to be joined by Daniel Otis, the journalist behind the two vice.com articles that rubbed their noses into Canada's strange relationship with whatever the hell is happening in our skies. Daniel Otis, your name has been popping up on my laptop and my phone for the last probably, I guess, week and a half since you uh, started releasing these, uh, well, Trilogy is three. What would you call two back-to-back articles? A duology of articles? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, but it's, uh, you you, all of a sudden, you've you've made a a big splash in the Canadian UFO space. Uh, But this is our first chance of getting to meet. So first of all, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.
0: Yeah. Well, t- tell me a bit about yourself. Who are you?
1: Um, I'm a freelance journalist. Uh, I've worked, um, I've written for about a dozen, two dozen publications, including uh, the Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, Vice, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I've written from Toronto. I've worked out of you know over 10 countries as a freelance foreign correspondent. And now I find myself writing about UFOs for Vice.
0: It's, it seems like you took quite the, uh, the the long road to writing about UFOs for Vice. Um, are, are you like do you have a background in the topic? Is this something you're interested in, or is this just a story you stumbled upon that struck um, your fancy?
1: I've always had a passing interest. You know, I grew up as a kid in the 1990s. Obviously, The X Files was on TV, um, but it wasn't something I took seriously as a journalistic topic. Mm-hmm. until I saw the coverage in the New York Times by Ralph Blumenthal and Leslie Keane. So they of writing about uh, the Pentagon's involvement in this in 2017. I imagine a lot of your listeners would know about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that really got me interested in the possibilities of uh, reporting on this topic, uh, you know, for you know, more mainstream publications and reporting on it in a serious way. Mm -hmm. Um, And what really solidified that for me was in April of 2020, uh, when the Pentagon uh, confirmed the veracity of the videos uh, that the New York Times had previously published. And uh, that sort of uh, sparked my quest to see how I could contribute to this conversation uh, from a Canadian perspective. And that also started me digging around trying to get some documents to see if I could find any interesting Canadian cases. Yeah, it it turns
0: out you did it because really like what you're talking about, the New York Times article is initially videos came out that were reported to be filmed by the American or the American military or Navy in some capacity. The Pentagon eventually, like you said, um, confessed that, yes, these are legit. We filmed them and we don't know what they are. And for a lot of people who follow the UFO topic, that is a step towards disclosure, which is like the government or some official source admitting that you know this is a, a relevant topic that they're concerned with. But in Canada, our government really hasn't made a big secret about it. There, there are documents that are released that have those three letters UFO in them. But what you've stumbled upon and what you've wrote about in your articles is, is something altogether different where in the first piece you wrote with Vice, it's it's obvious that several branches of the Canadian government not only are involved in or interested in, in in UFOs in some capacity, they have already organized a you know a system of reporting, and it seems like it's almost old hat for them. Tell me a bit about you know what you've stumbled upon in this.
1: Yeah, so what I found just doing old-fashioned journalistic work and by looking at completed access to information requests. I found some unclassified intelligence documents that were sent by a Royal Canadian Air Force squadron to transport Canada's Emergency Operations Centre. And what this document, the document involved uh, a civilian aircraft over northern Manitoba on January 6, 2019, reporting that they'd, quote, been followed, followed by an inexplicable bright light. Um, So within three hours of that incident happening, uh, the document shows that um, the document shows that civilian air traffic controllers contacted this Air Force squadron that's affiliated with NORAD, which is uh, NORAD being the Joint Canada-U.S. Defense Pact. And then so this Air Force squadron was notified. They filled out a form and then they faxed it to Transport Canada. So it shows that there is a reporting mechanism that's used in Canada uh, for when civilian pilots see uh, things they can't easily identify. Uh, It doesn't show whether or not there's any follow-up or investigation. I have not been able to uncover evidence about that yet, uh, but I'll keep digging.
0: Yeah, but I I guess it it says something, the fact that this report had even happened it it shows that like you said that there's some mechanism there and it's not this um you know buried secret this this is something you've learned through an access to information document that the public the public can access
1: yeah yeah Mm -hmm. and uh that was basically learned through one document and then connecting the dots with what i found in something another system called uh CADORS. Uh, yeah. CADORS is an acronym for, uh, communicate, sorry, it's an acronym for Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Report System, which is it's essentially a flight incident database that's run by the Canadian government transport uh, through Transport Canada. So anytime any kind of incident happens in Canadian airspace, there's going to be a record of it in the system. That could be a bird strike, a mechanical issue, Uh, a drunk passenger, you know, attacking somebody, anything like that gets entered. And what, you know, how I started finding these cases was through this system. And, you know, by looking, spending months, literally looking at thousands upon thousands uh, of reports, I was able to tease out some ones that, you know, you could call UFOs. and through that process occasionally within that system they mention specifically that the air force or norad are being notified so that's where i learned uh, you know the type of intel the name of the type of intelligence report i needed to look for in order to uh, you know connect those dots
0: Yeah, so, so this database, KDOORS, it's it's a shame it's not a good acronym. There's so many acronyms in, in the UFO world that just flow off the tongue. KDOORS doesn't really, but it's uh, in, in the most recent article when you wrote about a lot of the different reports you found on there, you have a link to it. And so I went to it and did some perusing myself. And just like you described, it's you could find, you know, one report, maybe, you know, there was a slick of oil on the runway at some tiny little like, airport in some town you've never heard of the next report could be you know um this reading of something that the pilot would understand wasn't working right but you've managed to just sort through years and years of these little incidents to find several notable ones like in the one that really stood out to me is um the the incident and in, i think it was in 2018 20- 18 in the fl- the Porter Airlines flight from Ottawa to Toronto Island.
1: Yeah, November 2016. And 16. I remember that one mm. because I was working uh, on staff at the Toronto Star at the time and I remember okay. that story popping up but yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah no, that story's cr- it's fascinating because it for people in the Canadian UFO space this was a, a big deal. It involved a, a Porter Airlines flight um, making a evasive maneuver to avoid something in the sky to the point that people were actually injured people on the plane. And it was covered, like, I think CBC and quite a few like local news sources covered it, but it just didn't make the big splash in the mainstream that it did among the UFO world. But what did you learn about this through, through the incident report that you found in this database?
1: Um, well, you know, some of what happened uh, that day was reported in the media at the time, but what wasn't reported in the media was um, the specifics of the report that came out from the transportation safety board. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a federal body that had to investigate this because there were injuries. So Let me just pull this up here. Yeah. So the transport, what in, in the Cador system, which is run by transport Canada, there was a one-sentence entry about this incident. It said that the flight reported flying by an unidentified object, not likely a balloon. And that's all it said. Hmm. Unidentified object, not likely a balloon. So then a few weeks later, the Transportation Safety Board's report comes out and um, provides a lot more detail. Instead of one sentence, there's a paragraph. I mean, it's not a multi-page report or anything, but it, it describes this plane. It's at... Uh, 8,300 feet, and it's starting to make its approach uh, to the Toronto Downtown Island Airport. So uh, as planes approach this airport, generally they're coming in across Lake Ontario. So this thing's over, it's uh, the morning, it's daylight, it's over Lake Ontario. And then according to uh, the report from the TSP on the approach, uh, the crew noticed an object directly ahead on their flight path. Uh, the object appeared to be solid, approximately five to eight feet in diameter, and shaped like an upright donut or inner tube. There appeared to be no relative movement. Uh, the captain overrode the autopilots. The object passed slightly to the right uh, and above the aircraft. The cabin crew members who were in the process of securing the cabin for arrival, were not seated, uh, received minor injuries when they were thrown into the cabin structure. Mm.
0: But It is a notable event, though. I'm I'm just trying to imagine what could be a a donut floating through the sky. It's like because initially when it happened, a lot of people were speculating that it was maybe uh, someone with like, um, you know, a semi-professional drone or something that had it up in commercial airspace sort of thing. But that is not a, uh, you know, a donut.
1: So one thing that didn't make it into the story, uh, because I didn't want to out him too much, but I I contacted the TSB investigator who oversaw this case. Mm -hmm. Uh, He told me that, you know, they were never able to identify it. The current spokesperson confirmed that. A previous spokesperson in 2016 said it did not match a description of any drone. Um, And the Transport Canada report says it's not likely a balloon. Now, I'm I'm not going to... I don't know, it could be anything. And I'm not really one to talk about things like, you know, ET hovering over Canada. Um, But what what I find interesting about this case, you know, it could even be some sort of surveillance balloon, who knows, but whatever, you know, whatever it is, it really highlights uh, both the flight safety and national security implications of these types of observations by trained aviators. If a trained aviator with thousands of hours of flying experience, is taking an evasive maneuver um, because there's something that they can identify ahead of them, uh, that warrants a deeper look. And I would hope that, you know, the Canadian military would have shown some interest if there was some sort of foreign body hovering in our airspace that, uh, you know, couldn't be identified. I think it's clearly a matter of flight safety concern issue. People got hurt. But it's also a national security matter and you know it could have been something very conventional and I, I don't really think whatever it is doesn't matter as much as like the, those in very real flight safety and national security implications
0: yeah and and that's kind of a side of the the UFO phenomenon that often gets lost like I know in your your article you spoke with uh, Matthew Hayes who wrote the um PhD thesis on the Canadian government's interest in UFOs during cold war era mm-hmm. um and in, in a lot of what he came across in his research, again, was like the, the government being interested in these reports, because it could be spies from somewhere else in the world or whatever, you know, sending stuff over here. But in this day and age, that's a lot more relevant of a, of a fear where, you know, drones have advanced and different types of surveillance equipment has advanced. There's a lot more odd stuff in the air than just commercial or civilian airplanes nowadays. Sure. And, and certainly it's something that needs to be taken care of almost like I just think as someone who lives in kind of a rural part of the country, we keep track of where, you know, the animals migrate because they may walk out into our highway and cars will hit them and people get injured. So you kind of need to watch where the animals are walking, much like in the sky, you need to watch where what's spinning around up there and where it's going, because you don't want it to crash into an airplane or land on something that, you know, is full of people. But um, what what you've come across in this? Did, did it's was there ever any information about any follow up or investigation, or or did, you're, you're just getting really the 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 tip of the iceberg where you're just finding out the report happened and it's and it's been sent to you know some concerned government branch that may or may not investigate.
1: Um, I I don't know. Um, I've spoken to a few. Uh, current and former members of the military off the record mm-hmm. um, who have indicated to me that as far as they know, there is no follow-up with this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But then there's some clues in the KDOR system that suggests that maybe some of these incidents are being looked into. Mm-hmm. Because I, I mentioned it in my story. Let me see if I can find this one. Um, most, most of the reports that are in this Transport Canada database, um, they usually appear within a couple of days or weeks uh, of an incident. Um, you know, so the data comes into Transport Canada, they type up a paragraph and then it gets posted on this public database. Um, there are a few cases where the reports are being posted uh, a year or more after. Hmm. So I didn't mention this in the story for space, but, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. OK, um, this one wasn't in the story and this one I think is probably a conventional aircraft, but it's still, um, it still speaks to the flight safety and national security concerns. So this, this case comes from 2006. This is a, a passenger charter flight from Calgary to London, England, and they're going over the Canadian Arctic because, uh, you know, flights from Western Canada to Europe usually go up and above the Arctic. Um, And they report, um, quote, a very fast-moving aircraft, at least 2,000 feet above them, generating a contrail and showing a white taillight. The aircraft disappeared into the Aurora Borealis after approximately five minutes. NORAD and air traffic controllers were not aware of any aircraft in the area. Hmm. Okay, so because there was a white tail light in the Contrail, you know, I I consulted with um, current and former pilots multiple on every case I presented to to see which ones are sort of, you know, more unusual and which ones are conventional. You know, they, they said to me that this one, there was unanimous agreement that, you know, the white taillights and the Contrail show that it's a conventional aircraft. But if something like this is, you know, flying within, you know, 2000 feet of a passenger plane, and norad and air traffic control don't know about it you know there's a national you know a national security concern and this one in particular i have no evidence that it was investigated further but if my memory is is good if i recall correctly this one was uploaded a year and a half or so later like it wasn't uploaded right away yeah, because when I view
0: that database, it seems like it's, you know, something happened today, I could do my paperwork and I input it. If it's being mm. added, you know, a year or so later, there, something must have, you know, I, I,
1: I don't want to like make a mistake here. Now, I, I would need to check my files to see if that specific one was the one that was a year and a half, but I did find one that was a year and a half. I did find one that was three and a half years. Um, the the printout I have here doesn't have the upload date, so in case I'm wrong on that one, maybe there's other ones. You are such a journalist. <laughs> no, I, like I, I fundamentally recognize that my ability to you know continue covering this topic and to be taken seriously uh, is entirely contingent on me being a stickler for details, mm-hmm. because I have to stick to the documents. And, you know, and get statements from everyone in government and the military. So that's why I'm just bringing up maybe I would have to double check. But yes, I found ones that took a long time to upload, which suggests to me that there might be some kind of research happening. But I don't know. I I don't have that document. No. Yeah.
0: Uh, you you talk about, you know, double checking facts and reaching out to people. I was impressed that throughout these articles, how many like kind of government and aviation authorities you managed to get in touch with to try to get a statement. What kind of reaction were you getting from these people when you were calling <laughs> to ask, you know, Joe Blow from Transport Canada about these UFO <laughs> documents you found?
1: Uh, like ha- how these uh, spokespersons responded? Yeah. It, it was it was a real mixed bang. Um, some seemed interested, some were very dismissive, some did not respond, um, but I'll, I'll I'll say this much, the spokesperson I dealt with from the Air Force and NORAD was probably the most helpful, friendly, and responsive of them all, you know, Hmm. um, other parts of the government, maybe a little bit less so, um, But yeah, it was, it was was a real mixed response, you know, um, yeah. Like some, for example, CSIS didn't respond at all. Um, you know, others were, gave me sort of thoughtful replies. It was really, it was really.
0: And when you went to these, like, you know, to CSIS and all these, the government or transport Canada, were you telling them what you were doing? Like I found these reports of unidentified flying objects or how did you like, how did you package this to get a response?
1: Um, sort of like establish, I, I was clear about what I was doing. Um, I think our military and, you know, Transport Canada probably get a lot of people writing, hey, what can you tell me about UFOs? Where are they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where, where's the bunker? Um, but I I, I approached respectfully, you know, I it, it just, it, I, I approached them the way I would approach a government body for a statement on any other story. Hmm. My name is Daniel Otis. I've written for so and so. I'm currently working on a story about this, about these documents. Can you answer these specific questions? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and it, you know, it, it was nice. To, the especially the uh, the Air Force, they engaged with me. You know, like most people engage with me. They, they respected that I was doing a, a document based approach, and I wasn't. You know, talking about reptilians or little green men or yeah. anything more out there like that.
0: But but that pro- that approach has, has proven to work. It, looking at what's happened in the USA with with the recent information over the last few years that have been released, a lot of that is the result of journalists that are you know doing good work and putting together a good argument, getting people online talking, and all of a sudden the government's willing to you know open up their books and give people a glance. And it seems like the the like I said earlier, the secrecy in Canada doesn't seem to be as uh, prominent as maybe as it is or was in the United States. I think it's more so here. It just seems to be a matter of someone putting together the stuff the way you have, like by scrolling through this database and finding the relevant reports and, you know, and putting it out there. It's um, it really puts together a picture of of a, a government in an in an aviation industry that doesn't seem to be afraid to at least look at the topic of unidentified objects in the sky, not saying they're looking for aliens or trying to shoot them down or anything, but it seems like it's, it's maybe not as um, fringy and mysterious as people think.
1: Can I, I'd like to counter that a little Mm -hmm. bit Um, in in the, in one of the stories I did for vice, I quoted a um, a retired uh, air force pilot, a Mm -hmm. guy by the name of uh, John Mm -hmm. Williams. Um, he, he estimated that probably 90% of these types of sightings aren't being reported. Hmm. Uh, and that, you know, in our conversation, he was telling me that the stigma is very real. Hmm. And, you know, if you are a military or a civilian pilot that reports something like this, you can expect to be ridiculed, hmm. you can expect to be looked over for promotion. Uh, you know, it, it's really debilitating to your career. Um, I've spoken, you know, to give you a hint of what's to come with what I'm up to, I've spoken to um, several Canadian pilots, commercial pilots and Air Force pilots, who've told me some pretty interesting stories about um, things they've seen above our country. Mm -hmm. Um, And every single, well, almost all of them um, so far, you know, are telling me this in a more off the record manner, as in if I were to do a story, I, I can't use their names, wow. and I'm, I'll honor that because, frankly, you know, if you're operating in an industry like that and you're going to be subject to ridicule for coming forward, like I wouldn't want, I wouldn't wish that upon anyone, and I understand it. So I think there's a bit of a overall thawing in, in terms of the general public's um, perception of the topic. I think increasingly, it's no longer being looked at. As you know, someone who's out hunting for leprechauns or something. There's a growing awareness that there's some empirical data here that warrants a further look. Mm. Um, but at the same time, there's you know, there's a there's a lot of stigma and there's a lot of obstacles for people to come forward. I imagine uh, that, yeah, I, I'm inclined to agree with that pilot, what he said to me, just based on the interviews I've had with people off the record what i'm i i found dozens and dozens of these reports and caterers and that's probably just a small snapshot yeah
0: that that's interesting because if there is this um, kind of taboo that goes along with it that adds a whole lot of credibility to uh, to the reports that are actually made right yeah yeah it's um yeah, that's a, that's an interesting element. But I guess my perception of it is more as a civilian who's looking at the news and kind of watching, you know, this thawing happening. But I guess the people who are in the mix, like an actual pilot who reports something like this, if if that's something they could be criticized for, um, I could see how that would prevent them from coming forward, which then makes the ones who do come forward or make the report that much more substantial.
1: Yeah, um, it's, it, it's a challenge. You know, I'm... Again, I want to reinforce, like none of this is supposed to be a hunt for E.T. in Mm -hmm. in my eyes. You know, Um, I'm fully willing to accept that, you know, all of this is foreign adversarial surveillance technology. Um, But what's important to me is that you have trained aviators, you know, with most cases, thousands of hours of flight time, encountering lights and objects that they can't easily identify it warrants further investigation, Mm -hmm. you know, it warrants a closer look and it does not warrant dismissal or ridicule. And I think that's what these folks are afraid of.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think the whole idea of, you know, extraterrestrials coming and spinning around in our, in our skies, that gives the whole thing a uh, uh, it's, it's easy to laugh at the topic of UFOs because of that one Avenue that it can go down. But really what we're talking about is, some objects or phenomenon in the sky that, you know, aren't easily identified and it could be a variety of things, but I think unquestionably they are being seen and reported. And I don't know how seriously they're being taken, but the government certainly has procedures in place or seems to, to, uh, to receive these reports. Well, here's the
1: thing, those procedures are in place, but they originate with a private company. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, the CADOR system does capture these sightings, but in terms of when the military is notified, the military is being notified by a private company uh, called Nav Canada, which operates all of the civilian air traffic infrastructure okay. in Canada. And they have based, uh, you know, their, the service UFO reporting mechanism is based on uh, American Cold War policies for reporting things like, you know, unknown Soviet aircraft. Uh, So, again, you know, I I just, I I see that there's the reporting mechanism there. It involves the Air Force, NORAD, Transport Canada, Civilian Air Traffic Control. But um, I'm still on the hunt for the, you know, I'm still on the hunt for the the document that says uh, our government in Canada cares. The U.S. Mm -hmm. has been very open about that. The Pentagon has been openly said, you know, we're looking into this. You have major American politicians like sitting, you know, Senators uh, Mark Warner and Marco Rubio, a Democrat and a Republican and the sitting heads of the Senate Intelligence Committee are speaking openly about this topic. And there's really an overall silence in Canada, Uh, in Canadian media, in Canadian politics. We're just not hearing about it. The documentation exists. You know, we can get documents, I think, easier than in other countries, but there's an official silence. And... um, Maybe, you know, maybe with this thawing, I would hope that, you know, someone might come forward and say, hey, Canada is going to, you know, we're going to look into this. We're going to, we recognize there's a safety issue here and that's important. Yeah, I
0: think it's a, it's a matter of time. Um, Tell me about some of the other reports that you found. I'm just, I know in the articles you, you had summarized quite a few that uh, interesting kind of reports that you found in this in this uh, k system. Can you tell me about some of the other ones outside of you know the Porter Airlines flight from 2016? Just to give a, a sense to the, uh, to the people listening as far as what kind, what kind of um, unidentified flying objects were reported, yeah, if you have so, any of them at your
1: fingertips. Yeah, no, I, I, I printed out a bunch of interesting ones. Okay. Oh, um, just to preface this, so just to preface, the reporting procedure happens. If you are a pilot in Canadian airspace, Uh, You see something like this, you call air traffic controllers, and it's air traffic controllers that are notifying the military, et cetera. So so there's potentially a game of broken telephone happening here, but generally these things are pretty succinct. Here's one from, where should we start here? Oh, here's an interesting one. Uh, This is an American Boeing 747 cargo flight from New York to Alaska. They're at 34 to 36,000 feet, mm-hmm. and they quote reported an object flying sporadically, estimated at 60 000 to 80,000 feet and moving at Mach 4. Details passed to NORAD. So Mach 4 means four times the speed of sound. Um, just to give some reference, the SR 71 Blackbird, which was retired in 1999. Uh, by the US had a maximum speed of Mach 3.3. And that was the fa- that's the fastest known aircraft in the world. So in consulting with this group of pilots I talked to, they said, well, there's no way that those cargo guys could know it was traveling mach-, mach 4. There's no measure, there's no device that's going to measure the speed. Uh, but they agreed, oh, these guys probably saw something, you know, bouncing around fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I can keep going. Another yeah. example. Um This one is, is, there's very, very few reports in the Transport Canada system that say things like UFO or unidentified flying object. Mm -hmm. If you type in those search terms, you're not going to get much. you got to dig a little deeper. I found that
0: myself, yeah.
1: Yeah, Um, but here's one where they they do use it. This is um, from 2016. This is an Air Canada Express flight from Montreal to Toronto. This is in the morning and daylight. They quote reported that they had crossed an unidentified flying object, round in shape, flying at an approximate speed of 300 knots, which is uh, just over 555 kilometers an hour. Okay. And then here it says again, NORAD was advised. But that's it. You know, that's, that's as much information as we get. Here's another one, uh, 2015. Um, from This is from Saskatchewan. Quote, multiple aircraft reported a very large object with a small white light in the middle, surrounded by a halo, moving northbound in the vicinity of Lumsden, Saskatchewan. One pilot reported the object appeared to descend from above 41,000 feet. And it explicitly mentions a service report, communications instructions for reporting vital intelligence sightings was filed. And that's exactly the type of intelligence report that I wrote about in a case involving a medical transport flight in northern Manitoba. There's lots of these. Wow. A lot of them. Yeah. uh, Some of them are interesting. Uh, This one's probably my favorite. I can pick a favorite just because it happens in my hometown. And, uh, oh, there's a few that happen in around Toronto. But I like this one because it involves uh, an, an aircraft that I think is pretty safe to call anomalous because it makes a... It makes a sharp turn. It doesn't make a curving turn. It makes a turn and, like True. that. And This is from 2005 when air traffic controllers in Toronto, quote, received reports from four aircraft flight crews of a shiny silver object over Toronto at roughly 30,000 feet, which turned sharply and moved rapidly to the southeast mm. over Lake Ontario.
0: Wow. Four flight crews report that. 30,000 feet in the air. So we're not talking about a drone or, you know, balloon well, or something like now, that.
1: If this case happened today in 2021, it could be a drone because there are commercially available drones that can really get that high. Oh, really, But yeah. in 2005, uh, no, no, probably not.
0: Well, that's, it's compelling stuff, but what, what is the next step? Like if it, say you have that report and you want to investigate that and you want to learn more, what avenue can you take or, where can you turn to to find out more information about what happened or what was reported?
1: Um, well, you know, it, I could go on about that, but I might reveal a little too much about what might be coming next.
0: Okay. And and that, uh, then, then don't. Cause my next question <laughs> is what's coming next. Cause what I'm hoping is that like these two articles that, that you put together so far, I really see them as like part one and part two of Daniel Otis getting the Canadian government to admit to UFOs. Uh, so is, there is a part three, so to speak?
1: Uh, well, I, I have a list of about sort of a dozen different stories I'm currently Good. pursuing. Um, there are other aviation cases. Mm-hmm. There are intelligence documents. Uh, there are some testimonies from some pilots and military personnel. There are sightings at Canadian military bases that are documented. Um, there are there's let's just say I I, there's a pile of documents I'm working with and there's some people who are telling me stories who would be considered credible observers
0: that's that's amazing and your first two these two articles that I brought up several times are both with vice is does vice seem to be supportive of you pursuing this topic
1: yeah um they seem to have an insatiable appetite for this topic and I think They, they're, they're courageous like that. They, they're willing to publish and accept stories like this. Um, I, I did speak uh, to some other publications, um, you know, through my research and uh, not a lot of interest, um, even though it was, you know, I'm writing based on military and government documents. You know, there's nothing controversial here. I'm just mm-hmm. it, I, I focus on what's on the page. Uh, but Vice, Vice is, you know, they, they tend to be a little more courageous in uh, in their coverage. And yeah, I've been working with a great team of editors there and uh, I look forward to doing a few, uh, some more stories with them.
0: When can we expect to see uh, something else you've done in print? How far out are, we, are you? Are you working on this tonight? I hope. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Stand by. Uh, in the weeks and months to come, there will be more. I I, I can't. Pro- There's nothing scheduled for next week, if that's what you're asking. Um, it was. But uh, there there is more to come, and there are a few things I could pull the trigger on now if I wanted to. But I'm still wanting to dig a little deeper on a, a few of these cases I've uncovered in the uh, in declassified government records.
0: Good. Well, it, and it's important. It's an important story. So I'm glad you're handling it the way you are and taking it, taking it slow and steady and doing it right for people who want to follow what you're doing other than following vice how do they follow along with you
1: yeah um twitter uh you can follow me on twitter it's ds uh, otis and um i have a website with links to stories danielotis.ca and from there uh, my email address is up there if anybody has a document to share a story to share. Um, I'm always, I'm all ears. I, I like hearing from anybody. Um, I'm always happy to talk about interesting topics. this.
0: I want to thank you for joining Daniel and I for this discussion. If you haven't already read the two vice.com articles we've been discussing, I recommend checking them out the first chance you get. I've added links in the episode notes to guide you to them. And with that, I'm going to conclude this episode of Nighttime. But first, before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. To start it off, a massive thank you to Daniel Otis for giving us some of his valuable time and sharing some additional details that didn't make it into his reporting. Next, a huge shout out to Monty Data for providing the theme for this episode. It's a track called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, A massive thank you for everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. If you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to find here on the free feed, as exclusive content is added to the premium feed regularly. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can help keep the show alive by subscribing at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the show. Susan, Elizabeth, and Cheryl, thank you for your generous support. For anyone listening who has story ideas or wants to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. You can also find me on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm often live on the Nighttime Podcast YouTube channel. You can click the link in the episode description and subscribe there as well. So I guess that's it. Until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright, Jordan Bonaparte.